Greetings to our global neighbors and all the ships at sea. From coast to coast, border to border, this is Message Traffic from Washington, D.C., presented by the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs. This week on Message Traffic, we have Dr. Binda Godlove-Aka, who is a current visiting assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Siena College. In this episode, we discuss the importance of emerging markets in Africa. We cover topics such as foreign investment in the region and the importance in growing infrastructure as well as other markets. We discuss how countries experiencing conflict are not able to effectively contribute to the rising market. Dr. Binda Godlove-Aka was previously an adjunct professor, research associate, research assistant, and economic development assistant at the University of South Dakota. He has had previous publications focused on security threats, post-colonialism, regional integration, and political leadership within the African continent, as well as several other publications. Binda has ongoing research projects focused on unmasking administrative evil in Cameroon, the importance of diversity in an organization, and several other projects related to the study of political science. Binda got his PhD in political science and his post-secondary teaching certificate at the University of South Dakota, his MPA at Savannah State University, and his MSc and BSc in political science at the University of Baia in Cameroon. Here's our interview. Binda, thanks a lot for joining us on your message traffic. Thank you very much for having me, Rosel. It's a pleasure. Not a problem. Uh, Binda, let, let, let's start with the, 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 the big overview. When we look at Africa, uh, Africa is a global market. I mean, we we keep hearing the term emerging market. Africa is an emerging market. Uh, but I, I, in in our view and in, in our work and research here at the center, we get the idea that that the the Western countries don't truly understand the emerging market that is Africa, you know, some look at it as one continental market. Others look at it as dozens of individual markets. So give us an overview and tell us which view is correct. So um, I won't say any of the view is correct. It depends on how you look at it. Africa, Africa is a continent made up of 54 countries. Right. And uh, these countries, they have their uniqueness that, you know, in the course of, you know, interacting between themselves, they have their uniqueness. So when we are looking at Africa as an emerging market, we look at the continent, and then we also try to look at how these different countries are, are behaving in the course of, you know, interacting with other states in the international system. Firstly, I would like to say, African Union, you know, is an umbrella body of these African states. And the African Union has carried out several engagements to ensure that it can, it can foster trade and development in Africa, as well as enable you know, economic activities to be pacified between Africa and other states of the world. In the process of doing this, some, some of the states have shown positive indications about you know, 
emergence, economic emergence, why some of them are still struggling. And if we are looking at Africa as an emerging economy, we, we, we can carry out a comparative analysis of African states before COVID and African state after COVID. If you look at the way most African states had you know, their economic interaction before COVID, most of them, they were doing well. If you look at foreign direct investment that went into Africa in 2019, in 2019, statistics shows that Africa had, Africa had 47 billion US dollars um, foreign direct investment. And uh, when COVID hit, you know, in 2020, that dropped by that 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 dropped by 16%. It stood at it stood at um 40, 40 billion US dollars FDI, FDI that went into Africa in 2020. And uh, despite the fact that most countries in Africa had some, you know, reduction in FDI that moved into the country, a country like the Republic of Congo still stood positive, still did well. Egypt that was right at the top with 9 billion in 2019 went down. South Africa went down. We have quite a number of countries that went, that went down following COVID-19. And this is a similar thing that happened in the world during COVID. To sum this part of our discussion up, I would just like to say that despite the odds that African states find themselves, they are struggling to, you know, to, to show positive indicators. And I consider Africa a virgin market where other parts of the world are struggling to get the best out of it. Why what? do I call it? Oh, sorry. No, 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 let me just let me just interrupt and, 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 and touch on that point for a second. You know, we're talking about, you know, almost a trillion dollars with a foreign direct investment into the continent of Africa, into those individual markets. You know, we see, you know, the truly spectacle markets. We see Nigeria, we see South Africa, mm -hmm. the, you know, mm -hmm. and then we see new emerging markets, although troubles in Ethiopia, Ethiopia was one of those markets that everybody had yes. its eye on. And yes. then we, you know, we see the tech boom in places like Rwanda to call Africa an emerging market seems that that ship is sale it is a market it is no longer emerging is that fair to say i would say it is a market but it is emerging because you know we can't rank african state with where we have the developed economies presently at when it comes to you know where ranking you the the united states has emerged canada has emerged germany has emerged we consider african an emerging economy because you know they are showing some indicators that you know they are embracing growth. They are embracing um, economic growth. So it is based on this that you know we can rate them as emerging economies. So that being the case, when we look at the economic drivers that are happening in Africa, uh, we see a lot of when we look at the foreign direct investment. We've seen China, for example. Mm -hmm. The Gulf, you know, the Gulf states invest a tremendous amount of money into Africa. Yet, when we talk to, you know, leadership in the different African markets, they keep saying we want to see U.S. investment, but we're not seeing the level that we do with, like, let's say, Chinese and Gulf state. Why do you think that is? Firstly, I would like to say, you know, states have their interest. The United States has its interest as it interacts with other states in the international system. 
China has its own interest. Maybe China has seen Africa as a place, which I, I assume that it has seen Africa as a place that it can maximize to make some profit. Maybe for the meantime, the United States hasn't yet seen it from that perspective. But the truth is that the present African state is structured, I mean, the, 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 the present state in Africa, in Africa, the, the 54 states, they are structured in such a way that with the fact that, you know, these states, they are becoming highly urbanized. These states, some of them previously, before the 1990s, some of them were not democratic. When they started embracing democratic ideals, we started seeing some elements of, you know, liberalization in their economy. And this liberal perspective also brought about economic, economic advancement. They started seeing some kind of you know, economic advancement in this African state. And I think, I think it is the right time for not only the United States, but countries of the world, such as you know, Great Britain. France is there, you know, France is trying to maximize you know, whatever profit it has been making in Africa since the colonial period. France is still there trying to tap, tap from it. And uh, I, in the course of looking at Africa as an emerging economy, I don't just want countries to go like, you know, they are going to tap. While they are tapping, they should also impact the, the, the society. You talked of China. China, the way China practice business in Africa, I don't think is the best because China is kind of exploiting the system in the process of, you know, supporting them as well. Right. And I, I put their support in quote because I believe that, you know, as a contractor or as, as an individual carrying business in a foreign country, you have to do something that you know we call transfer of knowledge. But right. with the Chinese, with the Chinese, they come with their personnel, they come with everybody, you know, from China, and they use just the laborers in Africa. So I think why countries are trying to interact with African state, they should try to also maximize this aspect where African citizens, citizens of different African countries can be able to gain knowledge why working with these foreign companies? Right. Well, but let me let me also talk about the Chinese foreign direct investment. You know, we always recognize the fact that China has been leading the foreign markets in investments into, again, particularly infrastructure and core economic uh, base. Uh, but the problem that we see that our center sees as far as all that Chinese investment is they're using, you know, mafia tactics. They will go in there, they will invest in creating a power grid in an African nation. And then after five years, the Chinese central government or the investor will go, okay, the bills do, you're going to pay for this. All of a sudden, a country like Congo saying, we just don't have that kind of money. We can't pay this off. They come in and they foreclose, and now they are beholden to this Chinese investment. They basically their power grid is beholden to the Chinese central government. Is is that helping, or is that actually diminishing the aspect of the interest in African nations seeking out foreign direct investment? I call that unfair trade because I put the blame on African leaders because. African leaders, they should, they should know the kind of trade deals they are striking with, you know, with foreign government. For you to go, you know, solicit money and you come and then not long after that, countries start trying to seize your, your property, start trying to engage you to pay huge amount of money as interest or as, you know, a loan that you borrow. Those are, 
I call, I, I look at them as, you know, being irresponsible on the part of African states. And the, it falls back, it falls back to the weak institutions that some of these this, this, this states operate, which I think it is, it is high time for, 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 for policy stakeholders in African states to, to correct these this wrongs that have been happening for quite some time in order for African emerging um, trend not to go down. In order for African emerging trend not to go down, their leaders need to be responsible because China, China is using what they are presently doing as a way to exploit countries in the continent. But Binda, let me let me just interrupt and ask you this question. When we talk about you know the the, the Chinese model, which basically it is, when you when you put the blame on the Chinese leader do, do, or the uh, the African you know individual country leadership, are they kind of caught between a rock and a hard spot as leadership and saying you know look we need in this case hydroelectric power generation and a new power grid to keep lights on more than 10 minutes every, you know, every day. Uh, but at the same time, they're kind of getting taken in the back end with these unfair trade terms that are put on this infrastructure. Does, it, does that put the leadership in the African nations at a disadvantage? Extremely at a very big disadvantage. I look at the, um, the disadvantage from, from different perspectives. Firstly, if you look at what some of these Chinese contractors and Chinese experts, when they go to Africa, the kind of things they do, some of the materials they use to carry out you know, their projects, some of these materials lack appropriate quality. After they are done with their projects, some of these African countries have to go solicit experts from elsewhere, most at times from European countries to come and correct the wrongs of of the Chinese government, which the blame still goes to African state because when you are engaging yourself, there are some standards. When you are engaging yourself with other, other countries, there are some standards you need to put in place for, this, for these guys who are coming to work with you to follow. But when these standards are not respected, when these standards are not adhered to by the people you feel, you know, you guys are collaborating in order for, 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 for the needs of your country to be, to be, to, 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 to be attained, it becomes a problem to the system. It becomes a problem to the system. So I think um, China is really helping not only to like, you know, mess up some of the economic deals they have with African states. They are as well trying to take Africa backward from where, you know, Africa is presently to a descending mode. Yeah, that is how I look at it. And I pray they get this corrected as soon as possible. When we when we look at the African market, you know, we we also know that the Chinese are very interested in what has been traditionally the export market for the African nations, and that is natural resources, whether it's diamonds, tanzanite, uranium, uh, key ore metals. Those tend to be people look to Africa. We know that's why China's investment is so strong. It gets them access to that. But is that is that a, a market or is that a misconception in transition that we're starting to see uh, more exports coming out of Africa outside of the traditional minerals, oil, or can you take that question again, please? I didn't follow you well. So I guess the question is, when when we think of the African export market, 
we think of African countries putting out diamonds, minerals, et cetera. Is, is, are we seeing a transition in that, uh, in that market that we're starting to see more technology-based, uh, more, you know, a more diverse market of exports from Africa to the, to the world, I guess? Um, actually, I would like to say, you know, Africa is a continent that still needs a lot of things to be done with respect to industry. And uh, most of your exports, we still look at them from the perspective of raw materials. When it comes to refined product, like, like you talk, they, 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 they do export some, you know, some refined product, but on limited basis, on right. limited basis, because they lack the industries. They lack the industries to get these things done. And uh, even though they, 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 um, they, most of these African states are unable to get involved with refining products, they have they, they they have engaged themselves with some kind of you know diversified perspective in terms of looking at the market for example education is another aspect that is really selling in africa that aspect is really selling in africa although you know they are not exporting it but within the continent it sells a lot and then also we have we have young tech experts in africa who are beginning to build apps who are beginning to see how you know they can sell their skills out of the world. This, this, this aspect has also come up to like, you know, give another image of Africa to the world when it comes to, 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 to technology, when it comes to technology. Yeah, so, so, but apart from that, apart from that, we could also think of agriculture as, a, as, 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 as an important sector in the African market. We can think of hospitality, we can think of energy, we can think of telecommunication, and as we know, Africa is stopping um, mobile adaptation in the world presently. Africa is stopping mobile adaptation, where we have, you know, different kinds of, you know, mobile banking taking place both in the rural and urban areas, and that has played a very significant role when it comes to the African market. It, Does we we just saw in 2019 the announcement of the African Continental Free Trade Area? Uh, how much of a challenge is it going to be to have the continental free trade uh, area, especially at a time where we're seeing a lot of uh, instability in governance in several parts of Africa? We're seeing the problems in Ethiopia. We're seeing uh, increased authoritarianism in places like Rwanda. Uh, we're starting to see some of the other troubles in, in Congo, et cetera. How, how is that balance? And is it going to be hard to really look at the African continent as a free trade zone? Thank you very much, Rosella. I'm going to look at this from two perspectives. Firstly, economic activities cannot prevail in an environment that is not secured in an environment that we don't have peace. Like you earlier said, Ethiopia, before the conflict that is ongoing, was doing extremely well economically. We could see from 2019 data how, you know, Ethiopia was right up there, but now it is declining due to the instability in the country. Instability is something that really kills economic activities. And in order for African free, you know, trade to take place continental-wide, there should be some kind of, you know, peace, stability, engagement between the, 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 the different countries and their policy stakeholders. 
And uh, the second aspect I would like to talk about, it has to do with the, the political commitment on the part of the 54 countries in Africa in order for this free trade to be to come to to come to existence in order for the common market to come to existence most of these this this these states these countries they don't want to give some part of their sovereignty you know to 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 a body which is going to coordinate their economic activities which is going to be able to allow people to just enter their countries without visa they are very scared so in order for them to get committed to it they take a lot of time before they could get that done some of the countries, they were part of, you know, this, this stuff coming up, but some of them have not even ratified the treaties. Moving aside from this continental, you know, free trade, and even to sub-regional bodies in Africa. Within these sub-regional bodies in Africa, some of them still have difficulties with free trade between the regional bodies. They still have difficulties. And in order for this dream of, you know, common market and a free trade to come to pass, which I think once it is achieved, it will give Africa another leverage towards, you know, the, towards the continent's emergence, towards countries in the, in the, in the continent's emergence. And in order for this to happen, there should be some kind of political commitment, political willingness on the part of the different countries. Okay, but Binda, let me just interrupt real quick and ask you this question regarding that aspect is, you know, we, we have seen, and I, and I hate to bring up a, a sensitive subject like this, but corruption is still a very big problem inside central governments and inside even regional municipal governments inside of a lot of the signatories and non-signatories on the African continent. Can a truly uh, free trade market be available to Africans until they get some of the corrupt aspects of governance under control? Ruse, thank you very much for that question. I will just start, I would like to start by saying that this is an academic discourse and uh, corruption is something we have to touch hard. So you shouldn't be shy when you want to discuss it. We should be discussing it with a lot of you know, enthusiasm because we need to talk about it. Yeah, corruption is, is, is a sickness that has eaten into, you know, right down deep into the African continent and uh, most of their institutions lack accountability because of this aspect of corruption, clanicalism, um, patrimonialism. So it is, it is but certain that in order for, for free trade to excel in the continent, this aspect of corruption need to be dealt with, not only corruption. In order for corruption to be dealt with, the institutions need to be accountable. In order for the institution to be accountable, the leaders need to be responsible. In order for the leaders to be responsible, civil society organizations need to be given that atmosphere, that free atmosphere, where they can easily participate in you know, the, 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 the life wire of the state and question the wrongs of the states. So all these different segments need to come together to put themselves together to get things corrected. Africa, we hardly emerge when the system is unable to address the weaknesses that is presently eating the institutions. Although, but, but, although, Binda, let me let me just let me just ask you a question because that's a great point. But you know, we look at you know, we let's take for example what's happening in Rwanda, and we look at uh, you, you know the, the the situation there where they were looked at the shining hill of democracy, 
a lot of Western investment. They became the data center hub and the fiber optic hub for uh, for Africa, for example. And then we saw a lot of the Western companies, Microsoft, IBM, Oracle, uh, you know, all the big tech go in there. But then we see Paul Kagame go from being the, you know, the head of the shining city on a hill to a horrible authoritarian, basically. What is, what is going to give, what's got to happen on the continent in a situation like Rwanda? And, and we can go to Nigeria, we can go to Kenya, we can even go to the instability of politics in South Africa. What is, going, what is it going to take to get Western, uh, Western companies to make investments into, I, I guess, true investments into the African market and to create a strong permanent market in Africa for Western companies? I don't look at it from the perspective of the Western companies doing something. I'm looking at it from the perspective of African, Africans and the African countries being able to pacify their domestic institutions for business activities to be able to take place there because they are the ones that possess sovereignty. They should be able to ensure that, you know, they clean up their mess so that you know, people, from, people can come from outside and get things done in the system adequately. If we are talking of Western, Western you know, um, economic stakeholders coming there to get things done, it's gonna be very difficult for them to get things done. Although we have seen some you know, international actors you know, trying to get into some of the affairs of domestic politics in African states, I think that should be left at the at the, at the, you know, at the sphere of this, this state to take charge of that. Looking at the case of Paul Kagame and the, and the other African states, I will, I will just like to, to make this remark that I think um, in the process of, you know, attaining democracy, in the process of attaining um, development, there are some lapses that states go through at times. I think Rwanda is at that stage where, you know, it is like, you know, galloping to get itself towards the right path. And I believe Uranda is gonna come out strong from there because Paul Kagame, he has learned his lesson, having been highly glorified in the international system about you know how he started bringing up the system. And uh, if we have to rate him in any way, negative or positive, I think he is trying to make, he is trying to make some adjustments. And uh, I think Rwanda still remains, Rwanda still remains a, 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 let me say, a drawing board for most African states and even some Western states, because if you look at democracy in Africa, Rwanda has the highest women representation in, in its legislature, yeah, globally. And uh, that is something that we have to, we have to appreciate. You will hardly see that elsewhere, having come from, having come from, you know, the genocidal issue we saw with the Tutsi and the Hotis. I think it is towards a part of development. And if you look at, you know, most of the initiatives that have been taking place in Africa, we can think of something like um, the Smart Africa Steering Committee. We can think of issues like um, the Transform Africa Summit. These are issues that were pushed forward by the Rwandan government under Paul Kagame. And through these initiatives that, you know, that is supported by, by African Union and uh, some international stakeholders, Paul Kagame has been able to, you know, to push not only Rwanda, but to help other African, you know, states 
to move forward towards, you know, advancing economically. And most of these two things that I called, they have to, you know, they have to restructure Africa in the international market. They have to see how they can digitalize the African market. Because presently we, 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 are, we, are, we, are, we are in an era of globalization such that if Africa is not digitalized, Africa will be unable to compete with other states in the international system. And the Rwanda government has made some effort to, to assist, to assist. So I wouldn't want to look at the limitation of the Rwanda government as something that I will, I will boil down on a lot because, you know, states do make error, but we expect them to, 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 to correct those errors. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it for um, with respect to that point. But, it, but, but I, I guess into the question is, you know, when when we look at uh, when we look at Africa, and we we talk about kind of fixing the stability issue. You know, we're seeing you know the instability down in South Africa. The elections the other day, what we thought was stability in the ANC, they are now below fifty percent uh, in the National Congress, and that is causing some problems for leadership there in in Pretoria. You look at Benin, the democratic uh, restrictions that Patrice Talon put uh, in basically taking out all of his opposition before the election. You look at that, I mean, that that it, it's kind of a difficult argument to say that if I am, let's say, uh, Verizon, and I want to put into a major mobile infrastructure network, or I am even Apple or Google, and I want to put in big data center hubs, or even Amazon. It Does it strike you as being a tough decision for Western tech companies in particular to put a lot of permanent investment in Africa, or is this now the time for them? to make the investment in helping establish more stability in governance in the African nations? So, um, um, I think I will, I will also look at it from, from two perspectives. Firstly, I would like to look at the, the, the view of modernization school of thought. The modernization theory holds that in order for democracy to excel, there should be some elements of development. There should be some elements of modernization. And uh, if you look at most of these African states, some of them just gained, you know, some democratic ideals about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 15 years ago, some 30 years ago. Most of them in the 1990s, they started embracing democratic ideals. And uh, they are towards the path of growth. We need to see these elements of democracy fully institutionalized when these countries have been able to inculcate some developmental ideals, when these countries have been able to maximize and implement some you know, aspect that deals with modernization. And all these things cannot just come at one point in time. I see it as a gradualist process because before the coming of democracy, there was a system that was in these different countries. And these systems cannot just disappear like that because once they disappear immediately, they are gonna cause disruption. And this disruption can lead to a more non-democratic state. So I think some of the states, they are towards that path. And uh, while working towards the path of actually attaining development, 
they have some errors that they are making. And also looking at this other part where we are looking at foreign investors coming to invest in the African countries. I would say, yes, they should come and invest in the African countries because in the process of investing, they are laying developmental grounds. They are laying developmental grounds. And most of the time, some of these investments, they help to strengthen democracies of, this, of these countries. Some of these investments, you know, like the lack of, the lack of employment by youth leads to a problem, the frustration aggression theory. When these youths are unemployed, they become, they become frustrated and the end point of being frustrated is aggression. When these countries, you know, when other countries come and invest in Africa, they have to give you jobs, they have to create employment and some of the things they do, they also have to foster gender equality through the kind of things they do. They have to foster, you know, the, you know, um, the, the upliftment of literacy, the advancement of literacy in the society. All this have to set a good, environment for right. democracy to prevail so right. by these countries coming to invest they'll be helping to you know to shape to structure to direct african state towards a part of you know better democratic and um, democratic practices we've got uh we've got about a, a, a two more minutes or so before the end of, of this episode but i did want to ask you uh one of the one of the terms that keeps coming up when we talk about the African uh, foreign direct investment, and actually the, the market as a whole, is financial inclusion. Uh, what kind of an impact does financial inclusion have in economic engagement, Where and where does that fit into the growth of the economy? Um, when you talk of financial inclusion, please, can I know the perspective you are driving at? Well, when we talk about financial inclusion, we, we, we talk about access to banking through mobile telecom, the access, you know, okay. the access to uh, purchase, um, I, I guess, uh, the, the ability to acquire goods and services by using a cell phone and mobile networks, as opposed to carrying around cash where a lot of these remote villages have to travel two days to go to a bank. Uh, that, that, that's kind of where we're talking about when we talk about financial inclusion, the access to financial transactions that normally wouldn't be available to them in traditional methods. I want to know the perspective you are driving, you are, you are, you are driving at because I, I, am a, I am a political scientist and we look at you know, financial inclusion from different perspectives when we are talking about equality within a society. So I, I earlier talked about. I mean, I, I mean, let me let me just let me just jump in real quick, Ben, if I could. Doesn't that access give or lead to the stability that you're talking about? Yes, that oh, aspect okay. of that aspect of financial inclusion creates a lot of room for you know um, some kind of stability because people can easily get their stuff done, be it, be it that they are in rural society and rural community or urban community. They can, they, can, they can easily assess, you know, banking facilities through their, through their phone, through, through different apps, through different facilities. They have a lot of way that they get things done. For example, I can stay in the United States and send money to somebody's phone in, in Cameroon. And the person can stay in Cameroon and buy something from a shop and they come and deliver it at his home. So this has gone another way, you know, to push forward economic activities in, in, in Africa. And it has really been a driving force 
in African countries. It has been a very serious driving force in African countries when it comes to their, their economic advancement. Could the U.S. learn something from Africa about that aspect of financial inclusion? Ask that question again, please. Could, could the U.S. learn a lesson from Africa in that aspect? Yes, I think um, the, lesson, the lesson the U.S. can learn, for example, when you go to rural, um, rural communities you know, in Africa, you can see a grandmother getting her things easily assessed without necessarily leaving her home, getting things easily done, and it can change the conception of the African market. For things like that to be happening in rural communities, these things were not there in the 90s, they were not there in the 80s. These are new things that are coming up and uh, we see them you know, taking the African market towards a different train. Right. The US can learn something, you know, about this particular aspect and try to see how they can get themselves engaged into the African market more. Right. Dr. Binda Goodlovaka, Professor, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic discussion. I hope you'll join us again. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Um, thanks for having me. For more information on the subject you just heard about, or any of our articles, reports, or events, log on to nycfpa.org. Also, please consider subscribing to Message Traffic on your favorite podcast service like Apple, Google, Spotify, or TuneIn Radio. You can also follow us on social media by searching for us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For questions regarding the center, or just to let us know what you were thinking, you can email us at info at nycfpa.org. On behalf of the board and staff of the New York Center for Foreign Policy Affairs, thank you for listening.